Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor and best-selling author of the book Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. And I am Jeremy Kaur, host of the New Books in Medicine podcast. American healthcare is broken. Across the United States, there are over 200,000 patient deaths from medical error every year, growing physician burnout, outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed from simply the hype. Our goal is that everyone from healthcare consumers to political and medical leaders will find value in the discussions on our show. You may not agree with the different solutions offered, but you will never again conclude that nothing can be done. We hope you will join us. Please subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcast software. For more information, visit our website at www.fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books in Medicine podcast. I am your host, Jeremy Kaur. Today, we will be talking to a very special guest, uh, Dr. Haley Fisher-Wright. She has been named by Modern Healthcare as one of the most influential people in healthcare and is the CEO of the Medical Group Management Association, or MGMA. Uh, she is here to talk to us about her best-selling book, Back to Balance, The Art, Science, and Business of Medicine. Haley, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for the invitation to visit, Jeremy. Oh, it's my pleasure. I was wondering if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself and uh, how you ended up where you are today. <laughs> well, that's a, a to use the Beatles phrase, it's a long and winding road. Um, I've had a, a very asynchronous career, but uh, started out, I, I am actually, a lot of physicians are the children of other physicians. Actually, I was the first person in my family to go to college. And so um, as a kid, wanted to be a doctor, um, even though I didn't really know what that meant other than visiting my pediatrician. Went through college, went directly into med school, went straight into residency, and actually opened my own practice before I was 30 years old um, with, a part, with a business partner and um, practiced for 19 years. In that 19 years, about, I would say, 15 years, 
in, I think I had an early midlife crisis and figured out pretty quickly that the whole reason I went to med school was to make an influence. And even though I, I loved practicing, I could influence one person at a time, but leveraging the arm of business, I could actually influence more people positively by doing that. And that's what I made the decision to go to business school. Um, so I went to business school and while I was at business school, met my future consulting partners and co-authors of the book, Tribal Leadership at USC in Los Angeles. And that started my, I call it the period of my life, my, uh, my vida loca, where I was practicing full-time, uh, consulting, management consulting full-time, and then also a president of a large independent physician group. I'm doing that all the time uh, for about four years, um, kind of basically, um, I would say, Sunday through Wednesday traveling the globe and then working for clients in all sorts of industries other than healthcare, then coming back on Wednesday and practicing medicine Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and sometimes Saturday, and then in between running the group. Um, and may I add, not sleeping very much. And that went on for about three years until my husband was diagnosed with kidney cancer. Um, he's doing great now. Um, and that caused me to reassess my priorities but that doing all those things simultaneously, I think, gave me a lot of empathy into what physicians' are li lives are like today. And um, at that point in time, started to grow the independent physician group from 100 doctors up to 100, and, excuse me, 1,000 um, doctors over the next three years, stopped consulting. Tribal leadership became a New York Times bestseller. And then at that point in time, I had a decision to make. Did I want to take the physician group and find financing and make it independent from the health system that we were partnered with? Or did I want to do something else? And, and I wasn't, um, you know, I, I wanted to do something I was really passionate about that I, you know, once again, going back to, I wanted to make an influence and didn't really feel like I had the opportunity to do that working for the physician group. And that's really what led me to a career being a hospital executive learning about hospital systems, and then back to MGMA. Um, I've been with MGMA now for three years, and honestly, it has been the real joy of, of my life as far as my career goes, um, because I've had the opportunity to really positively influence and shape what healthcare looks like at the front line, which is where my passion is. Can, can you explain a little bit about what MGMA does? You bet. So MGMA stands for Medical Group Management Association. It is one of the largest, and I would call it an institutional healthcare association. So along the lines of where the American Medical Association represents physicians and the American Hospital Association represents hospital, MGMA represents medical practices group medical practices, and from the smallest of the small, from one doctor groups to the largest of the large, so uh, groups that are within the largest health systems or independent, large independent groups across the country. So we, we see all the diversity of practice across the United States in all specialties. Our members, we have around 48,000 members at this point in time, but most importantly, we touch almost half of the healthcare delivered in the United States. So um, 
we are a, an influential group. And by that, what I mean is um, we have a, a small lobbying office in, in D.C., but what we influence is actually at the ground level where people see their physicians. Because for a $3.9 trillion healthcare, it's all built on what happens in a room with a provider, typically a physician, and a patient. And that's where we intersect the business of medicine. So what what inspired you to write Back to Balance? Well, it's actually kind of a funny story, Jeremy. Um, when I first started at MGMA, so it's very traditional healthcare association, and I, I'm younger than my peers, not by a lot, but um, let's just say I still have my original hair color. And, and being female, I stuck out from my peers, and I wanted to as a new new CEO, I wanted to make a statement that said, this is not your grandma's MGMA. MGMA has been around for 91 years. So I started giving a speech called Stop Whining, Start Leading. And the crux of it was really from the, the 25 years I'd been in healthcare of we, as physicians, and I'm a physician, we have more power and control than we think. Um, but we need to exercise it. And we need to kind of uh, have the discipline of not giving in to our base training and base desires, we have to learn to work collaboratively. So I started giving, this is my stump speech, if you will, my get get to know the new CEO. Um, And to be honest with you, it was well-received by practice administrators, but physicians hated it. I mean, absolutely hated it because it, it was very confrontational in the sense that said, you, you know, you, you have to stop whining and start leading. I mean, the title kind of gave it all away up front. Um, so, you know, I really thought about how and one, one group of people, I'm getting a lot of positive feedback on what I'm saying. And then on another group of people, they are just so angry with what I'm saying. So it must be hitting a nerve. So how can I take the same message and basically add some humanity to it? Um, and how do I take the same message and apply storytelling? So, um, you know, having been the co-author to Tribal Leadership, which was very successful book over the last 10 years, I think the part that resonated the best in that book is the stories we told. So how could I, instead of being a traditional doctor and just giving you data on data, how can I tell stories where people can see themselves in the insanity that's healthcare, and but and then feel empowered with the message that even though you see yourselves, you don't you don't have to be a victim. That there are definitely ways that and things that we can do at the front line where we can lead as opposed to follow. And that transformation in our healthcare system is not going to occur from the top down. I'm I personally and I I'm very transparent with this. I don't look to Washington D.C. to shape healthcare policy to defi- to define what the future of healthcare. I actually look at the people delivering care at the front lines as being the people who are going to transform it positively or unfortunately negatively for the future. And so that really was the genesis of writing the book Back to Balance. So you know your book covers a very very serious topic, but you include humor and pop culture references throughout. I'll be honest when I say I wasn't really expecting this, even though it probably should have been an obvious giveaway when the cover of a book is a cartoon of a man wearing his hospital (laughs) gown trying to hold it closed um, and not doing the best job. 
Uh, yes. I was literally laughing out loud during parts of your book and texting my friends and colleagues about it. Uh, I, I have to say, though, you, you had me hooked pretty early on when you referenced Jurassic Park, huge part of my childhood. Um, yes. Why did you decide to include so much humor in a book where the topic was so serious? I mean, let me say it, it, it added a lot to the book and made it a joy to read. But what what caused you to do that? You know, a couple reasons. Honestly, look, it there's nothing more noble than health delivery of healthcare. I mean, honest, and I don't mean just the doctors or the nurses or the advanced practice um, practitioners that are are delivering care. I'm talking for everybody, for the patients that feel vulnerable. You will never feel more vulnerable in your life than you will as a patient in the hands of someone else in care. Um, and there's a lot of humor in that. There's a lot of, and, and a, a lot of, I mean, almost all the books in healthcare that if you go to a bookstore and pull a book, um, you know, it's big diseases, it's tragic, it's, you know, horrible, but the reality is, you know, one of the things that um, I guess maybe the way that I see the world is in great tragedy, there's there's a sense of humor and that's where our humanity can be found. So if, if you read the book, I open with the story about the ridiculousness behind hospital gowns. And just just for your listeners, let me give it just a little insight. Um, you know, I open the story, the book with. Um, you know, we, we're all on this pursuit of patient experience and we, we really want it to work. We want our patients to be happy. And we spend a lot of money on this as a healthcare, you know, in the United States. And one of the, the focuses, believe it or not, has been hospital gowns. And people would just laugh to know that over $250 million a year is being spent on hospital gowns. Well, I mean, that's great. And so we have people like Diane von Fusenberg and, you know, some of these Michael Kors and, and uh, Nicole Miller coming up with these fantastic designer hospital gowns. And even to Toby Cosgrove, the CEO of the Cleveland Clinic, he's like, I'm going to put money into redesigning a hospital gown because I'm tired of hearing people complain about it. And in the line that I put in the book is, I'm so happy that we're focused on things like hospital gowns and better parking and, and oh gosh, I don't know, food, because it'll make everyone so much happier when the whole healthcare system comes crushing down on the things we don't talk about. And it, there's a humor in that. There's a humor in spending $250 million talking about hospital gowns when we're not talking about the things that really do matter, like the social determinants of health, which really determine 50% of how anyone's going to do in the healthcare system. And so it's, it's not mocking, but it is the gentle humor of, of recognizing your own humanity and um, putting it into concept so that people can actually hear it instead of hearing it as criticism or hearing it as I, you know, I, um, you know, as the CEO of this large organization, I am the only one who knows the solution. I don't believe that at all. I think everybody has the solution for themselves. And that's why I put the, the humor in there, because honestly, there's some things we do that are just downright funny. <laughs> there are also some things that we do that are downright tragic and wasteful. And that's also in the book. Uh, can you explain the balance between the art, science and business of medicine? And how do you feel it's balanced today? Sure. Um, so 
the book is called Back to Balance, colon, The Art, Science, and Business of Medicine. So for the purpose of this book, the art of medicine, for which there are 7,000 years of scholarship, the art of medicine speaks about the relationship between providers and patients. The business of medicine is how we pay, and the science of medicine is how we treat. And what I advocate in the book is that these things need to be in balance to get to the goals that we all want. Every single person listening to this podcast, um, by and large, wants lower cost health care, higher quality health care, um, and patient and have their patients satisfied and to have, frankly, providers satisfied as well. So to do that, we really need the art, science and business to be in balance. But where we are today is that science, we now practice medicine on a foundation of science, and then business is making the decisions, and we are diminishing or even removing the art of medicine. And that's what I advocate is, or what I talk about in the book is really what's pushing us to be disenchanted, burnt out, dissatisfied, both on the patient side and the provider side in healthcare. In your book, you, you talk about the idyllic healthcare days where you and or, uh, where your idol, uh, Dr. Jules Emmer, uh, during those days. Can you explain uh, what you found so inspirational in his way of doing things and how medicine has changed since then for both the uh, better and worse? Absolutely. Um, so Jules, um, Jules started practicing in 1948. Um, and I was his, he was my mom's pediatrician. He had come from New York to Denver, Colorado to set up practice. Um, and he quickly became one of the preeminent doctors in Denver area. Um, why? Because he cared because he knew his families and he knew the family, the family of the families and he knew people. I knew Jules to be, um, Jules had come to our house and I'm not advocating, just so for all the physicians listening, I am not advocating house calls. I'm just talking about what, what we experienced as a kid. Jules came to the house, uh, when we were sick, Jules, when we had, I have uh, two younger brothers, when we couldn't get, one of us had strep throat and this went on for months. The th between the three of us, we were passing strep throat back and forth. He met us in the back, not in the, in his office, but behind his office and swabbed our dog to check for strep throat. Um, we, I knew him as, my dad was a, for lack of a better word, a traveling shoe salesman. He would buy shoes from my dad and he'd buy them once a decade. So it was always kind of a joke that Jules would buy shoes from my dad. It was, oh, it must be 1980, 1990, 2000. It's time for his new pair of shoes. Um, when I was sick, he met me at the hospital um, and he was there for the highest of highs when my dad was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and my parents really didn't understand the disease. It was actually Jules that sat them down and talked with them. And when I was in medical school and needed a rotation, um, Jules, this, and this is probably one of my favorite stories. I went to his office to see patients with him for a month, basically, and in that month, I was um, my degree from the University of Colorado was in molecular cellular developmental biology or MCDB. It's basically the pre meds um, uh, degree. 
So Jules said, do you mind if I, and at this point in time, he's in his mid seventies. Do you mind if I, do you have your genetics textbooks? And I said, yeah. And he said, do you mind if I take it? So I lent it to him. And then I came back the next week to do the, the rotation with him. And he started asking me questions. And I found myself saying to this 75 year old man, we didn't cover the back part of the book. We only covered the front part of the book. So I can't answer your questions. I just don't know. That's the kind of relationship uh, that I had with my pediatrician. As I wrote in the book, there were my, in my class of 120 people uh, at the University of Colorado for med school, nine of us were patients of Jules. And so he had that indelible physician you know, what you, what you think of as the kind of the highest and best medicine as a calling, that's who Jules was. And that's, and I think that plus TV, the Dr. Kildare's, Dr. Welby's, Dr. Doug Ross's that are out there really shaped our expectations as a society of, of what a physician should be. And I'm using, you can't see me, Jeremy, but I'm using air quotes under should be, um, and yet what we what has happened over the last really 20 years is um, because business has taken over from the art of medicine. And I, and I would say Jules was the master of the art of medicine. He actually passed away in the last year. Um, and and um, what has happened over the last 20 years is that business has systematically just diminished the role of the art of medicine. So now it's more about, you don't have time to interact with the families because you've got to click the box and your electronic health record, or you're busy trying to get a pre-authorization, or you're trying to figure out how to code a complex visit. And all that sucks the lifeblood out of the relationship that you have with your patients. So let me just say this. Chapter five in your book is amazing. It's called Kenny, $84,000 in rainbows. Uh, you mentioned that you struggled about whether to put that in the book or not. I'm so glad you did. It's fantastic. Um, if any of our listeners want to know the process of what happens between going to the doctor and getting that confusing bill in the mail, read this chapter. Uh, can you walk our listeners through this process of when they go to the doctor to when they get their bill in the mail? Sure. Um, so let me let me just back up um, a few. The reason why I struggled with this chapter was I opened the chapter with the story of what really happened to my husband and I, um, both of us physicians. My husband is also a practicing pediatrician. Uh, when Mike was diagnosed with kidney cancer, underwent treatment for that surgery and treatment, and then the aftermath of having to navigate the costs involved. And this was prior to the ACA, so there weren't um, basically limits on healthcare. And the short version for your listeners is Mike and I both working as pediatricians, which on the physician food chain economic scale, we're, we're guppies, uh, not sharks. Um, we ended up with owing a, around $83,000 and uh, the hospital was demanding to be paid immediately. And I had called the hospital and said, look, I had no, you know, I don't have $83,000 to write you a check. And then they offered to me, well, but we take credit cards. And I didn't have an $83,000 credit card. Um, and by the way, probably not many people should. And so 
really pushed us on the path of almost being in bankruptcy, which is not uncommon. It's actually one of the most common causes of bankruptcy in the United States is medical bills. Um, and that really opened my eyes. Even though I own my own practice, my husband owned his own practice, really opened my eyes. Um, and may I say, didn't sleep well, lost weight. And ultimately, it was my parents had to rescued us from potential bankruptcy and losing our home over this situation. I mean, it got really dire. It gave me a lot of empathy, but it also gave me insight in the disconnection between the insanity of what we bill and how people experience the billing on their side. So to get back to your original question, when I would see patients, I would code and bill I would have a, a basically in the either an electronic health record or prior to that, I had a little sheet and I'd circle the, the sheet and I would say, all right, if you came in for a cold, I saw you for a cold, I diagnosed you with a virus, I wrote the note, I covered these things. Okay, it's this X level of visit. Let's say it's a 99213 would be the code. So then I'd fill that in, I'd send it to my biller. The biller in, in the section that you're referring, Jeremy, who was probably playing, um, this is early Facebook, um, was probably feeding her herd of uh, strawberry or chocolate milk cows, um, would basically put the bill through to a clearinghouse. Um, and she probably, you know, because she's just trying to move if you will, paper through or move electronic documentation through, she probably didn't look to make sure the insurance numbers were correct, the dates of birth were correct, et cetera. She just moves it through. That bill then goes to an electronic clearinghouse. Um, it doesn't go directly to the insurer. And the reason why is our billing program speaks, for lack of a better explanation, speaks French, but every insurance company speaks a little bit different language. So for this particular insurance company, um, they probably spoke Japanese. So you have to go to a clearinghouse. It interprets, I just saw this kid for a cold, and it's a 99213, to, and then interprets it into its own language and then sends that to the insurance company. Now, the insurance company has a choice. If everything looks clean and looks good, they can just pay what we're contracted to pay. Then that money comes back through the electronic clearinghouse where they take a small percentage of it and then gets distributed in a variety of ways, either a check to us uh, or could be put into an electronic drop, uh, drop box, which is kind of a basically a wire transfer, almost variant, et cetera. Um, and so there's multiple steps along the way. But let's say it's something more complicated than that. Let's say I, and in the book I use the example, let's say Johnny comes in and he has, um, for lack of a better, uh, Cheerios up his nose. So I remove the Cheerios. I do this by crunching the Cheerios in his nose by pushing his nostrils shut. That's not hard, although that's technically a foreign body removal. But let's say as I'm doing this, mom wants to talk to me about Johnny's attention deficit disorder. So I've removed the Cheerios successfully, but now we're engaged in a half hour conversation of does Johnny have Cheerios? Or excuse me, well, he does have Cheerios, but he also, does he have attention deficit disorder? And so we talk about that. And let's say we spend a half hour discussing that. And let's say we come to the conclusion that Johnny's seven and this is what seven-year-old boys do. They shove things up their nose. That's pretty normal behavior. 
Well, so then I code the visit. I code it as a form body removal, and then I use a, a, what they call an E&M code, a di- basically a evaluation and management code to code for the time that I took talking to this mom about potentially this going on. So it's actually two diagnosis codes. Well, insurance companies don't like two diagnosis codes. So this goes through to my biller, who's still taking care of her herd of strawberry cows, who sends it on the for, just to just to interrupt you for everybody that doesn't know that's a reference to a time wasting game on Facebook. I don't think she was hurting actual cows. No, not at all. But um, <laughs> yeah, it used to be this uh, game called Farmville, um, and uh, at Farmville you had chocolate cows and strawberry cows and vanilla cows, and then you would do certain things to grow your herd. Um, she spent hours making sure her herd was growing uh, during the day. Unfortunately, she didn't spend hours providing the right documentation that would explain why I was sending two codes to the insurance company for one visit. So this exchange and this bill goes into the insurance company where probably eight to 10 hours of office time is spent providing documentation, making phone calls, and basically having billing communication going back and forth to basically get paid the $46 for my time with this mom. And so that process went on for approximately 120 days. Wow. That's that's the insanity of our billing system. So, you know, kind of back to what you were talking about earlier when when your husband, you know, had cancer and you were getting those confusing statements in the mail, you're both doctors and you still had issues making sense of these. The reason I didn't want to put that in the book is just to be really honest, I was I was humiliated. This was probably one of the lowest times in our lives because, look, I'm a doctor. I've invested a lot of money in my education. My husband's a doctor. He's invested a lot of money in his education. We, you know, we're proud people. We're good at what we do. And yet this situation that was so beyond our control, his cancer, the cost of his treatment, having crummy health insurance because he owned a small business, um, All those things were so beyond our control and yet really could have fundamentally negatively shaped our lives in a very bad way. And to to put that story out there, which where was, I would say I was probably the most humiliated because here I am touting myself as a business expert. And yet there are certainly things that are beyond my control. I also realized the necessity of putting that out there. Um, And so from that standpoint, um, I think it's really important to understand that all of the systems in healthcare are set up with good intent. None of the systems in healthcare were ever really thought out far enough to understand the downstream consequences, such as when Mike and I uh, almost went through bankruptcy. You know, it's it's something that, you know, I, I think maybe a lot of people don't realize this. It's something that, you know, like as you were talking about earlier, is is, is a very common situation for people to be in. Uh, do you have any advice for anyone who, you know, is in a similar situation and, and maybe doesn't, you know, like like you doesn't necessarily want to talk about it to anybody? Or, or what advice would you give to someone in a similar situation? Well, a couple things have happened since then. So since the since the ACA took into effect, um, they set some limits on what your maximum amount of pockets can be for a certain thing. Um, but also, so I think there's that there. But I also think that people, consumers, even the people, and I would 
I would list us the challenges um, that Mike and I faced was we were providers and we knew all about providing care. What we didn't know was how to be good consumers of healthcare at that point in time. And one of the things I do point out in the book, and I do so in a kind of funny way, is whether we acknowledge it or not, I think most Americans think of healthcare as an entitlement, but really it's a business. And so as a business, we need to be educated consumers. And so what I advocate for people to do is to really understand what your health insurance does and doesn't cover. But when you get into challenges and people will, um, because thing you don't plan, you know, I didn't plan on my 40 year old husband being diagnosed with kidney cancer. Um, there are resources out there now, uh, attorneys, health systems, the acknowledgement that um, the, the economics of healthcare can push people into bankruptcy. There's far more resources today in 2018 than there was in 2008 when we were navigating this. So ask, I would ask, if you don't want to ask people you know, then ask, ask at the health system, ask at the insurance company as well. They also, almost every insurance company that uh, MGMA does business with has a patient advocacy standpoint for situations like Mike and I had. That's fantastic. Uh, as as the deductible, as, as high deductible health plans uh, become more and more common, unfortunately, there are more and more Americans who, you know, have insurance but are are scared to use it or don't think they can afford to use it. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, the interesting thing, the way that I look at high deductible health care is that. Before the ACA, as a practice owner, I had, I had patients that had balances in self-pay. And some of those got paid, some of it didn't, some of it we wrote off. All that has happened since the ACA is those balances have moved from self-pay to partially insured with these high deductible health plans. And so the st- same amount is still being paid, um, It's just moved to a different bucket. With these high deductible plans, and particularly with the aging of America, um, so we're not talking, I mean, honestly, we're not talking about millennials. We're talking about Gen X and baby boomers. I think there's a growing recognition of what the healthcare needs are. So a high deductible plan, once again, going back to being an informed consumer, you have to understand what that does and doesn't cover and you have to really plan on it. It used to be 10 years ago, we looked at those high deductible plans on, well, you know, something really catastrophic happened. I was in a car accident or something. It'd cover it. Now you need to take a look at that and say, look, if this is my health insurance, you have to plan for that first 5,000, 10,000. How are you going to cover that? How does that work? When do you hit that limit? When does your uh, high deductible plan take over? And so it, it really forces everybody to be in a, a much more informed consumer and educated about what your coverage is and isn't. Uh, let's move to a little bit of a lighter topic. You had a little quiz, uh, a little bit of a quiz in your book. Um, is this an ICD-10 code or a Kenny death from the show South Park? Um, I have a friend that I told you about earlier. Uh, he's a coder. And I actually texted him a photo of the quiz and we were dying laughing. Um, will you please explain a little bit about, uh, about what ICD-10 is and then what, what the quiz is for our listeners? Sure. Um, and I'm looking here. You know, um, so what ICD-10 is, is it's the International Classification of Disease. And so 
internationally, there's this new numerical system that identifies what a disease is. In ICD-10, which was a change from ICD-9, I used ICD-9 when I was in practice. ICD-10 went into effect about two years ago internationally. It, it basically became so specific that it got, and this is where the humor comes in, it got almost ridiculous. And so what we did, um, being a Colorado native, you know, one of our national treasures that we've contributed is South Park. And... Um, and because they both went to my, uh, the both creators went to my college, um, big fans of that. And so um, if you haven't ever watched South Park, it's a ridiculous, profane cartoon. But one of the events that occurs every single episode is one of the kids on the show's name is Kenny. And somehow he minds a, finds a way to die um, in graphic, ridiculous, uh, subline kind of ways. So... In this ICD-10 quiz, what we did is we stratified, is this something that happened to Kenny on South Park as a way that he died? Or is this something that's a legitimate ICD-10 code? And the reality is um, having, I think I wrote the the book went to print a year ago, almost a year ago today. Um, Having not looked at that quiz since I wrote it, what's really kind of funny is I took the quiz about two weeks ago and I didn't do so well on it because I couldn't remember which one was and wasn't because it's so, I mean, because it's so funny and so ridiculous. So death by jellyfish, suicide by jellyfish, you know, um, is one of the, is that an ICD 10 code or is that Kenny, um, you know, a nuclear, basically surviving a nuclear attack in a refrigerator is that a night like uh, Indiana Jones said? Is that an ICD-10 code or is that something by Kenny? And so as the people listening, you can go through that code and make your choice. And then the uh, answer key is underneath it. Well, one of the some of them were just ridiculous. I was dying laughing. Burned by water skis on fire. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> uh, well, you know, so clearly you, you didn't grow up in Florida where everyone has uh, all the amusement parks used to have water ski shows where someone was holding tiki torches. So, okay. Fair enough. That makes a little more sense. <laughs> yes. now. You discuss, you know, clunky electronic health records as a reason for both, you know, physician burnout and a reason why patients have less face time with their doctors. Can you talk to us a, a bit about this? In 2005, I attended a meeting um, and this was with uh, with what would become a governmental uh, bureau that talked about the government was going to fund a half billion dollars to make sure that everyone in the United States was basically could provide electronic health records. And the point on those electronic health records was that they would give patients a fully portable medical record that would decrease medical errors and decrease waste and decrease costs. So that was the goal in 2005. This led to meaningful use or for most of my colleagues, unmeaningful use. And so there were financial incentives for bringing electronic health records and programs to help you uh, put that in. Unfortunately, what has happened since 2005 is two things. Number one, the whole point in setting up this fully interoperable patient record that was fully transportable was that there would be interoperability. In other words, 
every health record should be able to communicate with every other health record. So it's 2018. That still hasn't happened. And then number two, the other point in all this was that um, it was going to be done so that the patient had their own record. Instead, what has happened with electronic health records is they become a tool of business. So we don't, I mean, we physicians don't necessarily look on electronic electronic health records as the boon that has improved quality to our patients at all. Uh, what our administrators have looked at the electronic health record is it allows them to look at productivity, it allows them to look at documentation, allows to code better and to build better. So it is a tool of business, not a tool of patient experience and engagement. In large part, I think the reason why everyone's dissatisfied with electronic health records is because we didn't ask ourselves the right questions when we were creating electronic health records. We didn't ask ourselves, how do we create something that the patient can use? We asked ourselves, how can we use this and pay for it? So that's the key question there. And to pay for it, we needed to make it unified with billing. And that's what really drove the development of electronic health records. And so that's where I think a lot of dissatisfaction is. We did, um, in the book, we mentioned that most, you know, the, the experience I always have when I go to see my own doctor is I'm always telling him, my eyes are right here. And what I mean by that is get your eyes out of the computer and make and look at me eye to eye. But the reality is, as a practicing physician, you have to document that visit. And study after study have shown that for every hour a physician or provider spends with patients, they're spending two hours documenting on electronic health records that the work that they've done in seeing patients. So, so it is it is really the source of a lot of dissatisfaction in both providers and patients in healthcare. Yeah, didn't you say in your book like uh, the average physician or, or family practice physician has four thousand clicks a day or something like that? Um, four thousand to seven thousand clicks a day. That's insane. Yeah, I, uh, I I constantly hear everywhere I look and and go and, and and everything that you know we need to be moving away from the the fee for service model of reimbursement. Uh, you mentioned that you think paper performance or value based programs such as Macra. Uh, put a huge administrative burden on organizations. Can you talk to us about this? Yeah, so everybody wants to move for value-based compensation, and it makes sense. Um, But value-based compensation has some pitfalls that we haven't quite as a society decided to engage in. So one of the fundamental tenets of value-based compensation is that we need to look at our healthcare system differently than we look at it today. And what I mean by that is right now, our healthcare system is really built on disease management, not healthcare management. We pay people for seeing people with disease and taking care of them when we're really sick. We pay them the most, not we take care of them when they're really well and never come to see the doctor. So there are some fundamental transitions that need to occur before we really as a society successfully navigate value-based compensation. That being said, the challenge of having a governmental uh, body such as CMS administrating 
uh, programs like MACRA is that they don't have the technological infrastructure to give real-time data back to the practices. So we're trying to develop value-based care systems without real-time data, which is honestly a crime in 2018, and giving practices feedback based on their performance 12, 15, 18 months later. And then we're actually now starting to deduct reimbursement for things that they did 15, 18 months ago and really not giving them real-time data to make adjustments in their practice today. So that's where, you know, I'm always pointing towards the transition towards or transformation in healthcare is really going to occur at the front line of healthcare. The transition to value-based care will occur at the front line of healthcare, not as a policy, because that's where the resources are going to be put to, to make that transition. Now, this might be a little bit of a loaded question, but if you personally could build a health system from the ground up, ignoring any you know, regulatory or insurance or, or anything like that, in your dream world, what would that look like? Uh, you know, this it's a great question, Jeremy, and I've, I think about this sometimes. Um, I actually, I would think about it from a much stronger consumer perspective. And I think about it from what is the goal. So if we're talking total fantasy state, taking off the what we already have, let's ignore that. And let's ignore, for the sake of this conversation, what the cost is. If I were to design the perfect system, it'd be something that would be focused on health instead of illness. It would bring the consumer or the patient in, and I like to use the term person, as a major partner, uh, because I think a lot of our challenges is that our health system is really predicated on almost kind of a, a paternalistic approach to the patient as opposed to doing the person. And then the other thing is that I would really build the system so that it's as transparent as possible. And I think one of the challenges that we constantly navigate is the opacity in healthcare, meaning what does it cost? What is it going to cost? What are the possible complications? What are the possible upsides? And how do you make the best choice? Um, so, so it's really more of a, you know, I don't want to use Amazon as the paradigm to emulate, but it's probably a, a it, in the way that Amazon responds or Google or Apple respond to what the customer and the marketplace wants, that would be the philosophy of the healthcare system, the fantasy healthcare system. What are your, in your books, you call them your, 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 your five shifts to get back to balance. Uh, what are those? Sure. Um, so the first shift, and this is probably the most important one for the, your listeners, because medicine is so strongly dominated by business, we tend to think use the motivators that good business people like myself would think intuitively make sense, such as money. So what I can tell everybody listening is money does not drive behavior of physicians. So incentivizing them with earning 5% more, 10% more, you will get, there's a lot of social science behind this, you'll get people to buy in for a short period of time. You may even see the needle move one way or another, but in the long run, you'll actually see them go below where they started from as far as behaviors go. So one of the shifts is moving from money to time. 
how can we, as we, as we build that fantasy healthcare system, really build in more time to help build the art of medicine? Um, another shift is we talked about this intermittently through this conversation where we're talking about what are the, what are the forces that are driving healthcare from the top, meaning governmental insurers, et cetera, versus the forces that are driving healthcare from the bottom, which is at the front line. So really what I'm advocating is to move away from complexity and move to simplicity. So, you know, having been a health a hospital executive, one of the things I was always surprised is that every every quarter we got new initiatives, but no one said, what are we going to take out so we can focus on these new things? So it, at the end, we just had new initiative on top of new initiative, and it ended up being horribly complex. In the move from complexity to simplicity, the first move in that is what are the things that we can stop doing because they add no value whatsoever. So that's the first the first part of shifting from complexity to simplicity. Shift number three, and I write about this extensively in the middle of the book, is moving from metrics to relationships. And what I mean by that is, to give a good example, right now there's probably over 5,000 quality metrics that people can measure themselves against. Even within different specialty societies of physician groups, we don't all agree on what the definition of quality is. So for example, the American Cardiologic Association's guidelines are different than the American Diabetes Guidelines are different than the American Medical Association's guidelines for high blood pressure. They're all similar, so don't get me wrong, it's not like they're, they're all dramatically different, but what they define in quality as far as what they measure are all different. And this leads to a propagation of measurements like basically like bunnies um, that keep going and going. And really what that does is it forces the physician or the provider to not really be as engaged with the, with the person because they're so busy documenting quality metrics. And MGMA uh, about 18 months ago published a study that showed that Every physician in the United States, on average, spends about $39,000 a year documenting quality, not making quality better, not helping the patient, just basically pushing paper out to document quality. So really what, what I'm advocating is shift from measuring things to actually creating relationships, because what we can show is... Whereas in business, we say you get what you measure. In healthcare, what we see is we measure a lot of stuff, but we're not getting the outcomes we want. But study after study shows that investing in relationships does get you closer to the outcomes you want. Um, shift number four is process-driven to outcomes-driven. And I've said it probably a half dozen times throughout this interview, are we asking ourselves the right questions? In healthcare in particular, we're always looking for best practice and iterating on process. So we don't ask ourselves, what, what could we start from? What are, where do we want to go and how do we get there? We say, wow, here's what we have. How can we do it 3% better, 5% better, 20% better? And that's just the wrong approach. So taking a riff from our friends in Silicon Valley, we're looking for 
really, what do we want? We want healthier people. We want it to cost less. We want to make an impact. That's where we start. Then we start to, then we create the systems to help get people in that, to that goal. And then we, we kind of stick and move like a hockey player would to get to that goal, as opposed to just saying, how can we get 3% better? And then last transition, which is kind of the, you asked me about fantasy scenario for what does Haley's healthcare system look like? This is probably, we did a, we did a thought leader summit um, the, the first year I was at MGMA and brought in probably some of the best and brightest leaders in healthcare. And they came from all different disciplines. And interestingly, they all had a different idea of here's how you need to do it. But when you really come down to it, what we all agreed to, all 30 people that we were in the room, is if we could somehow figure out a way for all of us to win, we would be able to move the bar on healthcare as opposed to the way healthcare is set up, which is zero sum, I win, you lose. So a good example is a healthcare insurer, when they get their, let's say they get $100 million to cover lives, they're going to set aside $7 million of that $100 million. That's their profit. So right off the top, there's their profit. Then what's left over goes to pharmacy, hospital, providers, et cetera. And then if there's money left over, they win even more. What if, what if they partnered with a group? And I'm not saying that everyone has to win at the same level. But what if we start looking at things on how can we both win? How can we get to the outcomes we want, which benefits both of us, which is a different, a different paradigm than traditional business practice. And it's not how we traditionally think in healthcare about how to do things. We're looking you know, in healthcare, we're looking at market share. We're looking at it from business lenses, not from the noble, um, the noble profession, if you will. Well, I will say Haley's health system does have a nice ring to it. <laughs> well, that's what HHS stands for, right? Well, there you go. <laughs> well, Haley, I've, I've taken up a lot of your time today, and I really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, but I do have one final question for you. Uh, what are you working on now? Um, so using the print, so the book Back to Balance was always engineered to be kind of the umbrella kind of the thought, I would say the thought process. It doesn't give you, these are the, it's not like your traditional business book where it's like, here are the 10 tips, tools, and techniques that you need to be productive, or here are the five things that you need to do to make healthcare work for you. That being said, the feedback that I've received from people is, you know, these are great ideas. How do you go deeper? So now what I'm working on is how do you take this? The, the principle behind Back to Balance is that it's going to, the solutions for healthcare are going to be very individual. In other words, what works for us here in Denver, Colorado may not work in Albuquerque, New Mexico or Chicago, Illinois, or in, you know, in Seattle, Washington. So how can we create some structure around how to find those solutions for everyone's individuality? And that's what I'm working on right now. Fantastic. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Um, and thank you so much for being on the show. Take care. Thank you, Jeremy. Take care.